This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So let's bring in our team to talk a little bit more about what we heard in that press conference and from uh, the Fed chief. Alex Harris is with us, bond reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in Queens. And Josh Wright back with us, chief economist at Right Side Advisors, joining us on the phone as well. I do want to kick off um, with you, Josh. What jumps out for you in terms of what we heard from Jay Powell? Well, one thing is just the strength of the communication policy. I mean, we've talked before about some of the stumbles that um, Chair Powell has had over the years, uh, but he just sounded so confident. You could tell this was someone who is used to being a decision maker, and he's not just a pointy-headed technocrat. Although, you know, as a former technocrat myself, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. no, but and you know what? We're, we're in an era where we're looking for leadership, right? And people to say things that provide some calm. And we've gotten a lot of that from Jay Powell. I think that's, I think many would agree about that. He sounded steady. He sounded clear on what we know and what we don't know. And here's how we're going to think about it as we start to learn more. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even just the visuals, because uh, Carol and I were both watching it, you know, from our homes and all the reporters, you know, working from home, or in some cases working from the office, like all dressed up. And there, you know, darn it, is Chair Powell like at his podium. He's got his mics. He's got his yeah. suit. Like the whole vision, you know, really does, as you say, Josh, sort of exude this air of confidence. All right, Alex Harris, come on in here. I mean, this is a Fed that has been incredibly active, to say the least, over the past six to eight weeks. What do you make of where the Fed sits now, and what did you hear from Chair Powell about where it goes from here? Jason, I was disappointed. And, and Josh could understand this, you know, being a bit of a, a wonk and, and the technocrat side. Um, you know, at least for the front end, you know, one of the things everyone was sort of waiting on is the Fed funds rate is really close to the bottom of that target range. And, and the Fed likes to move it back to the middle. And we got nothing on it, which was unusual um, because this is usually a time where they're like, we like to get ahead of this. So I would have liked to have heard maybe what was their decision on it, because they've usually been so quick to jump on that um, before. And maybe the minutes will give us something. But I guess, you know, more broadly, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting in his comments, you know, when he talked about the breakdown in the capital market, um, you know, and I, I've said this before, I, I honestly think that, you know, central banks and the regulators are going to have to do some soul searching here um, in terms as to why things broke so bad and looking at, you know, holistically at regulation um, and, and that's a side effect of everything that they're doing, um, you know, but QE is about, you know, or the asset purchases really isn't about, you know, um, pinning rates, you know, and bringing down the back end of the Treasury curve. That's about making sure that the Treasury market, the, what's supposed to be the most liquid market in the world, is actually functioning. And so you really, you know, for the Fed, you know, part of this, aside from watching the data and seeing how things evolve, is taking a look at the markets and really understanding their role because the balance sheet is growing massively and that's going to continue and they're going to carry that. And I think, you know, we need to stop and think about asset prices. I mean, there's a reason why stocks are continuing to rally because we've seen this. We've seen this show before. We've had a decade ago. 
Well, that's a, this is a good point. But let's, Josh. What do you? What's your response to what Alex is saying? I think there are some serious questions about how the financial markets may be changed by the Fed in response to some of these facilities. I mean, I noticed getting a little wonky here, um, as Alex said. Uh, if you look at the Main Street Lending Program, they're planning to use the secured overnight funding rate, SOFR, their preferred replacement for LIBOR. And I've been hearing that there are banks that are uncomfortable with that. Um, so the way they structure these facilities, a lot of these details, they could have long-lasting impacts. And uh, we already saw that a lot changed um, after the last financial crisis with the Fed getting so involved in mortgage markets. Um, the whole market started to shift around that. And that's part of why we saw the mortgage REITs, uh, these who are, who've had an important role in some of the market disruptions we saw in March. These other institutions that were doing the intermediation of getting the funds out to households um, in this new environment. And then they ended up becoming a problem years down the road after the Fed's intervention years ago. So what are going to be the new institutions and practices that are going to come out of this round of interventions that will lay the seeds for the next crisis? Mm. Well, that it's a really interesting point, uh, Josh, and, and it brings up one of the obvious sort of questions and threads that we've all been pulling, which is, what did we learn from the last crisis that we that is informing the way we act now? And I do wonder that in the case of the Fed, especially in light of a lot of people looking to the Fed for leadership. I mean, you think about what they're doing for smaller states and or smaller municipalities and governments, you know, in the absence of maybe some help from other parts of the federal government. I mean, what do you worry about in terms of what we need to learn from this crisis for the next one? Well, if the lesson of the last crisis was that our financial institute, our financial institutions need a lot of resilience in the form of capital and liquidity, yeah. now what we're learning in this crisis is the importance of resilience in our non-financial corporations. What do their debt loads and their balance sheets look like? What do their supply chains look like? What are their contingency plans? And we are going to have to take a hard look at that when we rethink our whole economy in the coming months. One of the challenges, though, is that the Fed doesn't have a lot of authority there. The Fed yeah. is not going to spend a lot of time um, looking over the shoulders of small business owners uh, beyond just determining whether or not they're eligible for a certain loan. And there's a certain influence to get from that, but how many of these um, smaller businesses are even going to take out the loans? Because they are designed to run on thin margins. That's just the nature of the business model. You know, it's interesting. So that's Neil one of the reasons we're concerned about consolidation yeah. and having right. the, uh, the larger chains take over. Neil Dutt of Renaissance Macro, who we talk to a lot here at Bloomberg as well, you know, highlights what Powell said, now is the time to use the great fiscal power of the United States. I mean, I really do think it's not the first time Ben Bernanke or another Fed chairman, Janet Yellen, said, hey, we're doing all we can, but right. it's really up to you policymakers to do the rest of it. Come on, and, Treasury, and, get on in here. Right. And you have to be above and beyond because people are really being impacted um, desperately by this. Alex Harris, um, your thoughts here on this when you look at you know what needs to be done on the fiscal side of things really to help out the overall system. Oh, gosh, there's probably more heavy lifting that they can do here. Um, you know, well, I mean, Ben Bernanke used to say it, and I think he said it best, like monetary policy is not a panacea. Um, and, I, and I still think, yes, and, and I think uh, Jay Powell was very diplomatic in the way he talked about, you know, right. the things that Congress has done. But there's always there's always more room here, you know, and just tossing it to the Fed and expecting them to launch all these programs and then expecting them to have, you know, sort of this um, overarching, you know, like just fix it effect, you know, and make everything okay. 
um, you know, it's a, it's a lot to ask for them because again, you know, markets really got wrecked um, and things seized up and, and, you know, and that's what they need to be focusing on is like, okay, why did all these markets that we made all these regulatory changes to seize and what can we do about it? You know, but again, you know, there's only so much they can do. They yeah. can only keep yeah. rates low for so long before, again, it ha- starts to have adverse effects. And I think right. really, if you take away one thing from, you know, looking at Alex, we got to leave it there. I'm so sorry. Alex Harris, Bond reporter for Bloomberg. Josh Wright, chief economist at Right Side Advisors. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Fed, listening mm-hmm. to Jay Powell. Obviously, the backdrop for all of this, Carol, is the virus. And ultimately, yeah. and you heard Chair Powell say this, this is a medical crisis, it's a health crisis, and so many of the questions and so many of the answers are hinging on when we get back to work. Well, when we get back to work is largely going to be dictated by both the therapeutics and the vaccines and all the treatments around this virus. Michelle Cortez has been following this as closely as anyone, one of the hardest working reporters at Bloomberg. So grateful to her for joining us, health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Denver. Michelle, uh, so good to have you with us. I know it's an incredibly busy day. But when we were setting up this show, we knew we needed your input, we needed your expertise to help us understand some of the headlines that we've heard from Dr. Fauci and others, and from Gilead specifically about remdesivir. What do we need to know, and what does it ultimately mean? So it has been one of the craziest days in my 25-year history of covering pharmaceutical drug development, let me tell you that to begin with. The... um, What we know about the data is not an awful lot at this point, but Dr. Fauci was at the White House today, and he did tell reporters sitting with President Trump that these results do look significant and striking, and it looks like we might have a treatment for coronavirus that's on the horizon. It could be coming as soon as this week because they've been working with the FDA. Basically, what they're saying at this point is that this will help you recover more quickly if you are infected. And they're hoping that it'll help people survive if they get it. But that one's not quite clear yet. Okay, so it's not a vaccine. We're talking about people who are infected. So it would help those um, that are out there. How quickly would it ramp up and get used? used? We saw the headline about the government kind of moving to an emergency situation in terms of maybe giving this and, and making sure that patients have access to it. So give me an idea of time frame. Exactly. Well, so Gilead also released another study today that showed that patients who only got this drug for five days did just about as well, and maybe in some cases a little bit better than those who got it for 10 days. So right there, that would double the number that we have. Also, it's important to remember that this is an infused drug, so it's not something that you can just take as a pill. It's not something that they can knock off in manufacturing plants easily. They actually have to create it. Um, Gilead has said that they expect to have um, a million doses of it by December, but uh, or a million courses of it by December. Mm. But that was a previous number, so it's unclear to us whether that's a million ten days or a million five days. So, Michelle, so this is something that, God forbid, we have a second wave, which we hear a lot of conversations about. That's largely what this would be useful for. 
Exactly. Well, there certainly are still a lot of people who are getting infected now in the U.S. and around the world. And while we think and hope that the number of cases might decline over the winter, I mean, over the summer, uh, certainly it's not going to go away entirely. There is actually another set of information that I don't know if you guys are aware of. I don't know if anyone's aware of it. Bloomberg just broke this news on vaccinations. Have you guys heard about it? I saw a brief. This was the Jen Jacobs uh, story, I, I believe, around the vaccines, or, or maybe you were. In, I'm sure you were involved in it somehow too. But I saw her tweet. This is about uh, vaccines potentially being available by the end of the year. Exactly. Yeah, it's called Operation Warp Speed that the Trump administration is just um, planning to announce soon. It's just early days yet, but Bloomberg did break this news, and what they're planning is they're planning to get all the vaccine manufacturers together and the U.S. is going to basically underwrite it and take all the financial risk. And the goal is to have 300 million doses of the vaccine by January so that everyone in America can have one if you want it, I guess. I Wait, mean, by how, January, how much by January? 300 million. 300 million. Is that Amazing. okay? So wait, help me here, Michelle. You understand, as you said, this has been one of your craziest days of covering the pharmaceutical industry, you know, and treatments. So, how is that possible? Does it mean we don't go through the normal testing of a vaccine to make sure it's safe? Ex- explain this to me. You know, I cannot even imagine how we would be able to go through the normal process of making sure a vaccine is safe. I mean, it takes. I mean, I, I don't even know of an example of a, of a therapeutic or a vaccine that's been developed in less than three to five years, and that's really, really fast. It's a very slow and iterative process, especially for vaccines, because you need to give people a vaccine and then test them to see who gets it and who doesn't, and then you can know after you've done that process whether or not it works, right? And as we've already discussed, like, the number of cases are coming down, so right. how are you going to do that? early trial to see if it works before you make 300 million doses. I just, I honestly don't see how it's possible, but maybe they do it. So the third leg of the stool here uh, is the serologicals, the antibody test here. Michelle, where are we on that? Because that keeps being brought up by governors and others and business leaders even as a key element of getting people back to work. What do we know about the efficacy there? Right. Well, so that is exactly the issue. People are not wanting to go back out into the public. It's great if everybody's opening up their economies, but if consumers are staying in their house because they're afraid of getting sick, it's not going to actually help any of those economies. And the way that they believe that we'll know that is if people are able to get tested and find out whether or not they have antibodies, whether they've been through the virus and are protected against it. A side note there, though, we still don't know for sure how helpful those antibodies are. Right, right. So, okay. Again, you are, you know, you are incredibly informed on all of this. So when you take all of this in, and I think it's great that there's finally, you know, Operation Warp and, you know, that we're pulling together all drug makers and just full steam ahead. Um, You know, as someone said to me, this isn't a moonshot. We, We know how to make vaccines. But nonetheless, there are times. I mean, what's your realistic, um, educated takeaway on this then about kind of when we really get all of this, the right treatments, the right vaccine, and that really enables us, Michelle, to kind of go back to quote unquote normal? You know, it's such a great question and truly an unanswerable question. I would say this is a moonshot. No, it's never, it's 
never been done before. We've had coronaviruses for decades that we know about. We have no vaccines against them. We don't have a vaccine against HIV. We do have one vaccine against Ebola. We've been working on that for almost a decade, and it took us to get just one. So for them to be able to do this would be astonishing. The same with the testing, the same with the antivirals. That being said, the global pharmaceutical industry is absolutely a powerhouse. If it can be done, I do believe they'll do it. I don't think there's any way that we'll know by January whether or not a vaccine is going to truly help protect people. I also think we don't know whether people will be willing to actually get a vaccine that's not been thoroughly tested, especially if you're under 65 and not you know, at super high risk of dying. Totally. All right. Well, uh, an amazing report on, as you say, an unprecedented day. Michelle Cortez, thank you. Health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from Denver. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Aaron Cannon. Cannon, excuse me, co-founder and chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. Uh, Aaron joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. Aaron, good to have you back with us. How are you? Doing just fine. Thanks for having me back, Carol. I hope you and your family are doing well. Yeah, I think Jason's family, my family, we're doing we're doing okay. We're staying healthy, which is which is of course the most important thing. Listen, Absolutely. interest interesting day. Um, and glad to hear you guys are okay. Um, yeah. Interesting day. Fed Fed meeting. Heard from Jay Powell. Uh, you know, it's constantly economy and virus. They go hand in hand. Uh, what are you focusing on? What are, What are you and your team focusing on right now? Well, you know, I think uh, the Fed chair today made an interesting sort of um, point, which is that um, he believes that this challenge will not just be sort of a near-term challenge, but more of a medium-term challenge, which we sort of view as, as let's say, two to three years. Um, you know, how the duration of this COVID-19 virus plays out, I think, is critically important to markets, to particularly equity markets and credit and it's, of course, critically important to the directionality of the unemployment picture, which is quite ugly at 26 million and growing. And so we're, you know, very uh, sort of honed in on, on, on that. And I think that it's anyone's guess uh, on treatment. Of course, the remdesivir uh, news today is very promising, but it's not a vaccine. And mm-hmm. I think the idea that people sort of roll back to work um, in, in the very near term without trepidation and that we wouldn't have perhaps some sort of second curve or uh, some uh, sort of speed bumps along the way towards an improvement post-COVID, I think is is foolhardy. I do do not expect this recovery to be linear. I think the Fed sort of um, suggested as much today. Yeah, it was interesting. I I totally agree with you, Aaron, that that was certainly what we got from Jay Powell. And I was sort of half kidding earlier in the show when I said – 
you know, he essentially said in, in terms of looking forward, the same thing that we're hearing from every CEO as he or she reports earnings, which is we don't know what's going to happen next. And so we just sort of have to take it as it comes. You know, you mentioned unemployment. And, and I do wonder, as you think about your business and you think about giving investment advice, what are the inputs that you're looking at to try and get your arms around this market and to come up uh, with a strategy that does take into account all these variables, especially around the U.S. economy. Right. So very quickly, I mean, we're first grounded in each one of our clients, their risk tolerance, what Mm. the optimal asset allocation looks like. If this isn't the year to have a balanced portfolio, I don't know which (laughs) year is that year. So um, not every one of our clients has that for good reason, because they're willing and able to take on more risk um, for every unit of potential return. But as it pertains to the economy, uh, you're right. It's hard to look at the market and ask, you know, is it, is it a proper discounting mechanism right now? I think the expectation for earnings this year, if um, the S&P 500 generated, let's say, $164 of earnings last year, there's a lot of talk that this year is about 100 um, what sort of multiple do you put on that? Or even if you assume, let's say, $130 next year at a 20 times multiple, that's 2600 And the S&P is over 2900 right now. So let's move to 2022. Um, maybe we're not back to 164 but we're at 150 And that at a 20 multiple, which is still a high multiple, we know the 25-year average is probably closer to 15 and a half, 16. Uh, but a 20 times multiple on 150 is 3000 which is pretty close to where we are right now. So as much as I am um, uh, uh, very much cheerleading this rally in equities, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time uh, feeling that uh, we're at a po- point where, where, where this is all justified. So what do you, so balanced portfolio, um, so new money, where would you commit it? You know, it's interesting. Let me just backtrack for a second. Our Sarah Ponsack has a great story, Aaron, on the terminal and just talks about how, you know, small – investors, retail investors, were running in big time um, into the market and looking to take oppor- you know, take advantage of some opportunities, especially when the market sold off. Um, that's over? Well, you know, we, um, you know, across the board at Clear Harbor, there was a lot of rebalancing going on back in, in mid to late March. And, and I, I can say that and feel proud about that. But, you know, if we were to uh, potentially, after this huge retracement, uh, revisit the lows again, well, you know, there's not going to be as much rebalancing going on at the same price point because it already occurred two, three weeks ago, right? So, um, but specific to, you know, what are we talking about clients now, particularly as it relates to equities, um, there are some really interesting trends that have sort of accelerated here. The, 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 the rise to the cloud, uh, telemedicine, uh, the semiconductor space, and the growth of data centers. Um, uh, investors looking for streams of revenue that are frankly a little more predictable the utility segment the 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 water utility specifically is an area that um is is low on the market cap uh total market cap spectrum but uh some wonderful companies there that we like uh if you look at healthcare um certain biotech segments um specific uh contributors to uh healthcare healthcare uh more generally like the human genome uh and the ability to serve have these drugs move into phase two, phase three, and into market more quickly. There are specific companies that tackle that. And so we think in the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of what we think is an elevated equity market, there are plenty of opportunities. 
Um, on, on the fixed income side, uh, sure, it's easy to look at low yields and say, why own them? But I think, again, um, as, a, as a hedge against the equity market, what we've realized is um, the Treasury market is still that hedge. And um, it's not the high-yield market. High-yield smells very much like equity here. And I think what we've learned is that trying to sort of uh, create a diversified portfolio of equities and high-yield bonds uh, really hasn't worked and uh, is is, is really somewhat irresponsible. Um, We we put high-yield into sort of the equity bucket of our asset allocation for that reason. All right. Well, uh, interesting times to say the least. Fast moving, uh, as you say. Aaron Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer of Clear Harbor Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.